Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the show. We have an episode that I am so excited to share with you. Two singer-songwriter slash authors, Jenny Beth, lead singer of Savages, who has struck out wonderfully on her own, and Jenny Vall. Jenny Beth has a fantastic new LP out, as well as a book of erotic fiction. That's called Calm, which stands for Crimes Against Love Memories. I could think of no artist whose aesthetic so closely jives with Jenny Beth's than Norwegian dark wave conceptualist Jenny Vall. She released an LP late last year and recently dropped the single Bonus Material. Jenny Vall's second book comes out later this year. Now, listeners, I need to tell you about the thinking behind this pairing. Not only are these two artists hugely conceptual, I'm telling you, their work comes with artist statements, but they are also somehow each quite visceral. In their music and books, they've each brilliantly dissected the multiplicity of sexuality, gender, violence, anger, identity, and love. As I was thinking about the intro to today's show, I kept thinking, who understands the darkness, the cerebral and conceptual elements that Jenny Beth and Jenny Vall are working in better than Nika Rosa Danilova, a.k.a. (laughs) Zola Jesus? Nika, welcome back to the Talk House. Thank you so much for having me. Nika has, of course, been on the show previously in conversation with Circuit Des Hailey Haley Four, and on the written side of the Talk House, has opined about Bauhaus, conversed with Devin Welsh, he of Magical Clouds, pondered Olga Bell's work, and much, much more. The most recent Zola Jesus LP is 2018's Okovi Editions. Nika, where are you joining us from today? I am currently in the woods in northern Wisconsin. You've made your home there. You are leading the Midwestern goth charge. I'm trying. It's an exodus, you know, it's an exodus back home. (laughs) (laughs) How have you been spending this time of social isolation? It has been pretty isolated, particularly being in the woods. Oh my gosh, I believe it. I've forgotten a lot of what socializing even means anymore. <laughs> but, you know, all the better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and I have to say, you have this amazing Patreon account. So we've gotten little glimpses into how you spend your time there. There have been some pretty amazing live stream concerts, some works in progress, some unreleased material. Tell me, how are you marshalling the strength and focus to be putting so much out there? Lack of choice? No. <laughs> yes. Um, how am the I? The artist's plight in 2020. Yeah. No, it's it, having Patreon has been such a lifesaver because all of my plans have been canceled. Everything that I was scheduled to do this year has been put on pause. So having Patreon has been this like blessing where I have a place to put everything and, and to still communicate with fans and share things. So I've, I've yeah. been very grateful for it. Do you have any dates on the calendar, Nika, or are you holding off until we know a little bit more when things will reopen? Yeah, all of my shows that I had booked for this year, which have weren't even that many, but they've all been slated to happen in 2021. So 
I guess, got to wait till next year. Listeners, definitely keep an eye on ZolaJesus.com to pick up tickets for that. You must see Nika live. In fact, my daughter, Conway, who you've heard about a little bit on the show, her very first concert that wasn't a family member's show was Zola Jesus at Pitchfork, I want to say 2018. You're part of our family, Laura Nika. Oh, I'm honored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I really felt as if you have an understanding of the approach of these artists more than almost anyone else. Now, first off, Jenny Beth, Nika, did you ever see Savages play? I haven't. I've seen video of them and it really is electric even through YouTube. Yeah, same. (laughs) My God, it's like it's an assault. Mm. Her solo music is no different. Now, Jenny Beth was born and raised in France. She moved to London as a teenager and that's where she formed the all-female dark post-punk group Savages. They released two records, Silence Yourself in 2013 and then Adore Life three years later. Jenny Beth went on to become a DJ on Beats One, where her show is called Start Making Sense. She's also an actress in French cinema, as well as a host on French television. Jenny Beth has famously collaborated with the Gorillas on their song We Got the Power, which also featured Noel Gallagher of Oasis. And she's worked with Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. Jenny Beth's partner in both life and work is the multidisciplinary artist Johnny Hostile. Before Savages, they had a band called John and Jen, and Hostile went on to produce both Savages records, as well as provided photographs for the new book Calm. On her debut solo record, To Love Is To Live, which dropped just last Friday, Jenny Beth has some other very cool collaborators. One of those collaborators was Idol's Joe Talbot, who listeners caught on the show just last month in a fantastic Q&A. But there are many more. Romy of the XX is also featured on the record. The dearest Romy, who I toured with years ago and was produced in part by Flood, who I've also worked with in the past. An absolute hero of mine. Flood is, I've never met him, but one of the first producers' names I knew as a little boy because of his work with Depeche Mode. Yeah, and you too. And uh, Nine Inch Nails' Atticus Ross also lends production, which is as incredible as any of the work that he's done with Trent Reznor. This is a heavy-hitting squad. It's huge. From To Love Is To Live, let's check out the track, Heroin. All I want is to go dancing with the devil. She's amazing. Gorgeous. It reminds me of kind of like late era David Bowie. Yes. Really groovy, but also kind of like spoken word. I I find it really, really captivating. Her focus on words, which they talk about a lot in the following conversation, is really inspiring as someone personally who hates words. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised to hear you say that you hate words because your lyrics are gorgeous and heartbreaking and devastating. Oh, thank you. And and seemingly very considered. Yes, but they don't come naturally, I guess. Ah, gotcha. But these two, Jenny of All and Jenny Beth, are just wordsmiths, and I really respect that. It's, It's rare. Nika, you mentioned that you've collaborated with some of Jenny Best collaborators. I know that you are also a longtime friend and Sacred Bones family member uh, alongside uh, Jenny Vall. Yes. What did you all meet? 
We met several years ago, I think when Jenny signed the label and I, I caught a couple of her shows and had some great conversations with her. We really connected and I, I just have so much respect for her craft and her vision, which I feel like is so unique. I just feel like what Jenny of all offers to the artistic landscape and the creative landscape is really brilliant. There have only been a few artists of the hundreds or maybe thousands that I've worked with over the years, both as a musician myself and then as a host, who I feel actually somewhat uncomfortable with because I see how fast their brain is moving and I cannot keep up. <laughs> and Jenny Vall is one of those artists. Do you know what I'm talking about, Nika? It's so, no, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. The scope of her imagination is so wide and with so much depth That's and it. idiosyncrasy that it makes me feel like a fraud. <laughs> That's it. That is exactly it. It's harrowing. It's truly harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Well, Jenny's first novel, Paradise Rot, is a poetic look at queer longing and coming of age. I read it because I was a fan of her music. I had no idea what it was going to be about. And I realized the power that she wielded lyrically in her songs is magnified on the page. It just gives her so much more room to roam. And she has an upcoming novel, her second, called Girls Against God. That drops in late November. And the publisher Verso released this amazing teaser, which I just have to read to you guys. Ornika, do you want to read this? I would love to. A coven of witches curse contemporary Oslo. A group of schoolgirls get lost in a forest. A time-traveling Edvard Munch, the Norwegian painter behind the scream, appears in 1990s Norway and joins a death metal band, closely followed by the teen subject of his painting. Puberty, who has murder on her mind, awful things happen in Aspic. Jenny Vall's latest novel is a radical fusion of queer feminist theory and experimental horror. I am so fucking here for it. Me too. Jenny's also been working on new music. Her track Bonus Material came out earlier this year. Of that, she says, it's an unfit... Or do you want to read this, Nika? Do you want to read this? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, Jenny has just released a new track called Bonus Material, which is a gorgeous ethereal musing with saxophone. Yes, saxophone. She says it's an unfinished track about unfinished substances leaking into one another. Trash practicing love. Well, I don't hear any trash on that track. Believe you me, <laughs> I just hear a nightingale with... Mm, with a saxophone. With a saxophone. <laughs> Let's take a listen. I love her voice. Oh, incredible. And again, we talk about the conceptual nature right. of these women's work. I mean, she has thought out the concept of this track. She, she knows where she wants to go before she goes there. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> Are we intimidated? Slightly. Yes. <laughs> now, the two Jennies had a very open and frank conversation that I could have listened to for another three hours. We hear about 
their complex relationships with their countries of origin and the very powerful role of language in their self-identity. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that aspect of the conversation really interesting because as someone who is a native English speaker and writes in English, I feel a disdain for my native language. But hearing them talk about the, the poeticisms within English and how they're able to express themselves more clearly with the language and more poetically, it made me have to think about English differently, but also I wanted to start thinking about how I can communicate in a second language. That's really interesting because it made me think about the way that you've utilized Russian, which is um, your family bloodline yeah. in your own work. Yeah, and I think it's probably the same thing in a way where there's this detachment, but also this identity that allows you to express things in a more abstracted way. I thought that was really beautiful, but then also I, I appreciated how they connected on the feeling of following their own artistic threads that don't actually participate in the mainstream. Exactly. These are artists that I, I cannot see climbing the charts and it's because <laughs> they're too much themselves. They're too weird. Yeah. And, and I say weird as the highest compliment possible. Absolutely. There's something so beautiful about trusting the uniqueness of your voice and knowing that that is more palpable than reaching some sort of height in, in terms of external or material success. Mm -hmm. I respect that so much about both of these artists that they're willing to follow their voice wherever it goes. It, it was also cool to hear them give a parenthetical in the way they spoke about how Kendrick Lamar somehow brought all of the qualities that they try to work on in their own art into the mainstream. Yeah, that is very interesting. Which I agree with. I mean, he's totally done it. He is a very rare artist in that way. Oh, absolutely. I appreciated and respected their ideas about how they cover or approach provocation and good versus evil and how artists these days are expected to be these conduits for morality in a way. Mm -hmm. If they're constantly expected to be you know, these moral beings, these angelic beings, that really reduces and narrows the, the scope of what we're able to, to tackle in our art. As Jenny Beth puts it, they're expected to have, quote, never-ending streams of compassion. Exactly. I loved that. Yeah. You know, as an artist, you're a bit of a divining rod. You're an antenna for all of the emotions and feelings and experiences of human life. But those things aren't always good. And we shouldn't be expected to censor ourselves before it hits the page because that is what art keeps. Art keeps all of the shades of human experience, good and bad. I appreciate that all of the shades, good and bad, made it into today's conversation as well. Yes. Nika, should we roll the tape? Let's roll it. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. It's weird not to be able to see you, Jenny, though, and speak to you for the first time. But where are you right now? I'm in Oslo. Okay. At my home, which is looking terrible because um, I'm moving out. Right. So I'm just hoping that my recording doesn't get this horrible empty house reverb. But if it does, then I think maybe it's meant to be fits. I, I, I don't hear the empty house reverb. And if even That's if I good. did, I think it would be quite suited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Haunted house reverb behind you. <laughs> yeah. So where, where are you? I'm in Paris. I'm at home as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been here uh, for 
a few months now since um, quarantine started here in Paris, uh, in France. Mm. But I'm all right. It's um, It's been a very sunny quarantine here in Paris and it's been very strange. The, the city now, because the quarantine has stopped, so the city now is sort of getting back to normal. But for a while it was very empty and very silent, which secretly I wanted to stay like that forever. <laughs> uh, yeah. Empty city, clean city and quiet and, and everyone was sort of keeping their distance and uh, mm. which, which felt really nice. <laughs> which felt like the kind of city I want to live in because um, Paris can be quite dense and intense, you know. Mm. I've only a few times had a really good time in Paris. I mean, I've only been visiting, but it's sometimes mm. it's been like too, way, way too intense for me. Yeah. But I've heard from people I know in Paris and it's it seemed very different from here because we've never really been, like there's been no real quarantine here. Unless, I mean, if you've mm. been sick, obviously you've been isolated. But we've been sort of advised to keep going outside throughout the whole process because it's mm. good for, for your health. And I guess it's something we could do because we didn't have that many COVID cases and because it's not a Paris type city. It's not, even Oslo is not that big. It's not yeah. that dense. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been all right here, but it has been very quiet. Yeah. I mean, we have the luxury of it being pretty quiet most of the time. Can I ask you, um, what is your relationship with your country? Because um, uh, from what I read, what you wrote, uh, your, your fabulous two books, uh, I think actually the, the second one hasn't really been released yet. Am I right to think that Girls Against God is coming out? Oh, you, did you get it? Yes, I did. Oh, wow. Because I, I, I said, send it to her. <laughs> so that's fabulous. You're fully updated. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I have a complex relationship with my country, um, don't we all? Yeah. So I always wanted to really, really get away from where I grew up and maybe just, you know, in the entire Scandinavian zone, mm. which I did. But at the same time, I mean, now I'm pretty happy living here in Oslo, where I'm from. Mm. So I've, I've returned and I'm quite, yeah, I'm quite loving like many things about being here. But I, I think that I needed to travel a lot and go to many other places to appreciate certain parts and tolerate other parts of, of yeah. where I come from. Why do, why do you think was this uh, need to escape initially? I grew up in a, in a small town. And it just felt very, very small and intolerant. And I also f fell in love with various forms of art that I knew that I would be quite hmm. alone with very early on in my youth. So it just didn't seem like there would be any room for me staying and there wouldn't be any communication. Also, I had a complex relationship with language, which is why it's so interesting for me to read the translations of my work because I have written these books in Norwegian and um, then they've been translated. Yeah. And it's just been a real challenge to find my own writing voice in my own language. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you, because you're absolutely fluent in English, why you chose your native language. <laughs> 
Yeah. So the first the first book I actually started, I, I wrote quite a lot of it in English and I don't think I could have written that book without writing in English. Mm. I started writing that, I mean, years ago, 2005 or something. And it was necessary for me to stay in touch with like the language I had encountered in a, in a lot of different other works. So a lot of stuff I wouldn't have been able to read in Norwegian sort of was, mm. you know, like living in my head. Ways of communicating, ways of using language that I didn't know could exist in my own language um, because I'd been away for so long. So I started writing it in English and then I sent it to a publisher and they just told me there are no publishers who can work with English text in in this country. Mm. And my my first editor also told then told me that even though you can speak English pretty well, it is your second language. Your English is actually not that good. I mean, as a writer, there are so many mm. things I didn't understand. I don't know if he was 100% right about that because I love to read books written in English by people whose, you know, English is second language. Mm. But I guess, I mean, he was he was half American, so it seemed like a <laughs> valid point. So I struggled and struggled and struggled with writing that. But when I wrote the um, Girls Against God book, which was much later, I had a lot of fun with the Norwegian language. And because I was writing about Norway and Scandinavia, I felt like I was al almost turning Scandinavia into like some kind of Austria, the repressed, um, mm. the repressions of an Ikea country or something. It just felt right to use my Norwegian voice. But by then I was more comfortable with it. So yeah, it's been, it's taken me a very, very long time to sort of learn to wow. express anything in Norwegian. But you are writing in your second language or one of your languages. I really connect with what you're saying about language. I think similarly to you, I think that's why our paths are quite, uh, I mean, I don't know whose idea it was to get us together, but it was a great idea. <laughs> Because yeah, I think there's, yeah. there's a lot of similarities in what you're saying and, and your trajectory so far that I can relate to, like, um, especially so coming, I grew up in France in a city that wasn't too small, but it was like a university city. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to see gigs and have access to some kind of culture, but it was still very regional and um, regional minded, if that makes any sense. And especially growing up with questions about you know, my own sexuality. I, I didn't want to be conditioned by my education and I felt that there were some things that I couldn't express as a kid or as a teenager. Mm. So escaping, I really relate to that because uh, English, um, the language was, was the first form of escape because it was a language my parents didn't speak very well. It was mm. the language of rebellion because it was the language of punk music. And it was the first and the only language I learned to sing with. So when I was mm. eight years old, my parents introduced me to a teacher, like a music teacher, who was a jazz sort of um, a genius a pianist. And he was incredible, this incredible uh, Spanish man, actually. And he, he would teach me to sing all those jazz standards and teach me how to play them on the piano. Oh, wow. And uh, it, it, every Saturdays, yeah, I, I, I have great memories of that. I remember food and, and music <laughs> Saturday nice. afternoons. Yeah. And um, so English became the singing 
language, you know, and and so I started writing my own things in English and be creative with that new language, which was why also I got good at it quick quickly, you know. I, I know in Norway or you have English pretty much. Uh, I mean, it's more accessible, it seems, or it's on TV. It's in France. It's it's nowhere. You know, there's no. Mm. They're very protective here with the French language. Yeah, yeah. We don't really use English words in our own language or the Academy of French, you know, uh, mm. language is very uh, careful on media, etc. to replace every English word by a French equivalent. And so I felt that English was sort of a language uh, that could be, um, I could express myself and I could become someone else. So mm. I sort of shaped a new personality with a new language. And when I went to London for the first time at the age of 15, I fell in love and I knew I was going to live there. I finally settled there completely at 20. Mm -hmm. And all my 20s then, from then on, uh, I stayed in London and I lived there and I became who I am now. And it's part of because I was able to have a clean slate in a way. Mm. Um you know, I could speak to someone, but they wouldn't be really aware of where I was coming from, what was my background, which you usually, you know, you can guess quite rapidly when you speak the same language and you come from the same country, you know, you could say, oh, you're yeah, from yeah, the yeah. South, you're from the North, you're from, mm. but when I was in London, nobody could tell. And I felt that was very liberating. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I moved to Australia, which I did in 2000, maybe because I was in doing music I would always adapt to the people's accent like other people's accent <laughs> yeah and I yeah, would yeah. I, I was living with with a bunch of people from uh southern England I think like mm. Brighton area and I spoke kind of like them for a while I didn't even kind of notice and then <laughs> and then later on I lived with Australians and got this kind of <laughs> Australianish accent but it was just marvelous that nobody could tell where I was from yeah yeah mm, sorry for interrupting because I want to no, hear the rest no, absolutely <laughs> no no absolutely I, I I I was thinking about what you just said I think it's mm. um especially when you're an artist I think I don't want to create cliches but I think you know the 20s you know the, when you're 20 to 30 I think you're shaping your artist artistic identity your mm trying things and failing. I mean, you keep failing after 30, of course, but you know what I mean? It's like mm. this sort of first attempts and all these attempts are shaping who you become and what you want to say. And and I felt that I didn't want to be determined by education, a social mm. class uh, or religion. Mm. And it was about putting down those walls that I had, um, that are necessary maybe for when you're growing up as a kid. Mm. and education is necessary or you know but the fun yeah, of the yeah. 20s is to break them down <laughs> yeah, yeah and then um, you return to them afterwards but a lot of people return to it all afterwards yeah and that bit that you just said really spoke to me as well because uh, going back and I wanted to ask you at what point did you feel I'm gonna move back to Norway and I mean I, I'm sure it was not all conscious straight away but were you feeling unhappy uh fragmented or, or why did you need to go back to the roots basically so I lived in Australia for four years I finished a bachelor and I did this transitional year and I applied for a PhD 
I did this kind of very quick, like I, I could sort of see my future. I was、mm. going to have a PhD in, I don't know, creative writing or like, I, I didn't quite get there. <laughs> Which means that I moved back, before, like just as I got into a PhD, and I even got a scholarship. To my mom's horror, I moved back. <laughs> 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 just when you know something was worthwhile, because my parents felt like they were very far away. I mean, that's probably much more noticeable when you are the parent than when you are the child, because、mm. I just found because I'm moving house, I just found this amazing folder. My mom had saved this folder of. Printout versions of every single email I sent to her while、no. I was in Australia because that's what you did in those days, you know. You、yeah. still printed out emails to sort of. Oh, yeah, you、uh, do. Okay, well, what is this? <laughs> It's a letter. I'm, I need to have it as a letter. I need to document as a letter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and she、It's、saved them、sweet. all. So it was so sweet. Because it reminded me how I did not understand how far away I was at all, even when I moved back, especially Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So far away. So I moved. I mean, it was partly because I got, I got sick for a while, and then I sort of realized that oh, it's really difficult、mm. to to sort of stay in another country and sort of have no family. I mean, that's difficult. A lot of people choose to do that, and that's really tough.、Yeah. So I, I guess I was confronted with that, and also like this: doing a PhD, or did I want to pursue arts? Mm. And then, and then I sort of got, I got into a writing school in Oslo that I thought would be more like set me on the path to be an artist or like a writer of fiction rather than going through the PhD system and being more of an academic.、Mm. So I think that I, I, those two things combined, this kind of, and and encountering my health, encountering the fact that I had aged four years, which was then. Kind of scary to me because I thought I would be twenty forever. <laughs> um, even though I was only twenty four when I moved back, I felt so, all of a sudden I felt very old, very vulnerable, um,、mm. and also very sort of on like having to choose between a, a more of a career and having more freedom to develop some kind of artistic career out of what I had traveled into. So I think that that's that's why I returned, and then it was kind of hard to go back to Australia after that. So I sort of left. I have two lives,、mm. and one one ended at twenty four. I feel there's one part of your book on.、Uh, let me know if I'm wrong, but there, there's this moment where you imagine the life that you have left continues on, and it. It continues、mm-hmm. parallelly to yeah, your yeah. the choice you've made. So the choice you haven't made is still a reality that carries on. So you are still、yeah. back there in Australia, <laughs>、mm. becoming a teacher. Yeah, <laughs> the idea that time sort of goes on. I mean, it's, it's. I think that still is very strong with me. That you don't leave. Your choices kind of stay behind in you somewhere. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's very sentimental and unproductive. <laughs> but but I think that unproductive is is kind of a very positive、mm. aspect of life. I've had those thoughts when I was a kid when I would be walking down the street and choosing to change pavement, and I would imagine that the me who didn't choose to change pavement was still walking on the other side of the street.、Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate to that a lot. All those like parallel, yeah, Jennies. 
as we are now too, in name. Yeah, and it's the idea that you're leaving a trace um, everywhere you go, you know, and mm. um, yeah, I quite yeah. like that idea. Don't know what to do with mm. it, but I like it. It's enchanting. But you've also returned. So you're in Paris, which means that you have returned as well. Do you live there when there is not Corona times? <laughs> yes, I, I, I moved back, uh, I think, three years ago, a little bit more than three years ago now. Mm -hmm. So I spent 12 years in, in London and um, I was at the end of the tour uh, I did with my band, Savages. Mm -hmm. And I was also touring with gorillas around the world. And, and it felt at that point, I think everything was fine. I was having a lot of fun. Um, I was doing a new radio show for Apple Music. I was meeting a lot of people doing that and I was traveling with gorillas and I was having a good time, but I think I felt quite unhappy um, after, um, you know, the the end of the touring with Savages and mm. it there were some, you know, difficulties I was facing within myself, I think that were getting bigger and bigger that I couldn't really escape uh, and they were preventing me from carrying on just the way I usually did, you know. <laughs> mm. So I hit that point and then instinctively moved to Paris. I mean, my partner, uh, Johnny Hostel, was already in Paris. He'd moved there two years before. So I was in London, he was in Paris. Mm -hmm. He'd um, got a studio here in Paris. So because I wanted to write new music, it felt, okay, I'm just going to move to Paris. We're going to move together again and and work, you know, um, with mm. this great facility we have. And so there was like those practical things. But then I got into therapy and I got into therapy in my French language, my native language, which oh, wow. uh, I didn't really think about at first. But when I did the first session, I realized I'm speaking French <laughs> about, yeah, yeah. about me. And it was wow. so weird because I felt suddenly I was using a language I left behind and it was the language of my 17 years old, you know. Mm. Mm. Uh, of me when I was 17 or because I didn't really spoke that language that much for more than a decade mm. and I always referred about me or had deep conversations in English I French was had become this sort of secondary old language from the past and and even when I was going back to Paris or to France to see my family I had an English accent It was very pathetic. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was, there were certain words I couldn't say anymore in French because um, I had abandoned wow. it so much that I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I went into therapy and then started reconnecting with the language. And parallel to that, I was writing my, my record To Love Is To Live in English because I, mm -hmm. you know, singing for me is really English and I'm sure mm. for you too. But um, yeah. And, But then I was writing my book as well, Calm, um, and and that I wrote in English. And I still, I'm writing like an, another, probably a next book. I don't know exactly what it is now, but I still write in English. I still think it's a great, you know, I'm not there yet. Uh, like you like to go back to being creative and really deep into the my native language. But, but I think I felt fragmented. I felt there were parts of me that were not connecting anymore. There was the artistic me, the artist, the, the stage performer. And then there were, there was me at 15 years old who went to London for the first time. And, and mm. those two people were not communicating and were, 
and I had left behind my family, like I rarely saw my parents. So, so I think there was unhappiness and sometimes unhappiness and friction is important. I mean, it's uh, useful when you're right. And, but I felt mm. I hit a point where it was sort of preventing me from going anywhere. If I wanted to progress in what I'm writing about, if I wanted to get to a different stage in my art, mm. let's say, I felt I needed to sort out this connection and actually embrace me as a French person. Uh, accept myself for from yeah. being from that place, from those parents. I always admired, I remember artists who could say, oh, my dad was this or my mother was this. And with a sort of a romantic nostalgia, you know, I don't mm. know, like, you know, Tracy Amin or like uh, different artists who I'd see interviews of and it could be like retracing their origins and you could feel there was a real embracing their roots and who they are. And I felt yeah. so not at that stage. I felt, don't ask me anything about where I'm from. I'm sort of suspending in time and in space and I'm connected to nothing and no one. <laughs> mm. uh, which obviously cannot really sustain for very long because then you're sort of pedaling in the void, you, you know, in the emptiness and you sort of yeah, yeah. suddenly feel like you're going to fall. But yeah, I mean, it's it's both something that, I guess most people eventually face at some point. Yeah. Like you can never really break away, but you can enable a voice. I mean, I just find it so interesting that you struggled with pronunciation um, <laughs> because I find I'm a pronunciation nerd. Right. Aren't we all when we sing? Pronunciation is so primal to me. <laughs> it's so instinctual, yeah. so much to do with its um, subconscious so I just, it's hmm. just like a beautiful image, not being able to kind of sit down in your language or, or get the choreography of communication right. It's clumsiness. Yeah, and I wanted to blur the, all the sort of uh, signs of where I was coming from. So people thought I was English or were not sure. Still today, actually, journalists in France uh, think I'm English. Um, mm. I mean, I was part of an English band. Mm. with three English women. So I suppose there is a, an obvious sort of confusion coming from that. But also I think I was consciously trying to blur the lines. And so now I feel better. I'm, I've, I'm not where you are, like able to write in my own language, but I feel I've got um, to find this sort of parallel line where I'm actually connecting a little bit more with my country, even even playing here more or doing more interviews here or like things that are, you know, allowing people to know me a little bit more. I've started a music TV show here in France where mm -hmm. I invite musicians to talk mm. and to perform on TV and have this moment where they can express themselves on stage and on also with me and as a group, like we all talk together. Mm. Wow. But it's in English. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in the past, I would have not agreed to do this in my own country. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we don't really have anything like that here, I feel. Nowhere. I mean, in TV is very hard on musicians, I think, and that's why I yeah. wanted to do it. Mm, uh, for sure. We, we rarely sit them down and ask them to talk about culture, the world, politics and ideas, or even just to be funny and, you know, entertaining yeah. people. Yeah, uh, yeah. TV is reserved for, I mean, culturally, it's the cinema and... Even when I did like TV with Damon Albarn, you know, in, in the UK. So it's like his mm -hmm. home country. He would play at the end of the 
Graham Norton show and then be asked to come to talk but at the end you know yeah like for five minutes when it's yeah, yeah, and, yeah, it's, yeah. It, and it's fucking Damon Albarn you know what I mean like it's yeah so it really struck me I was like what it's so strange like why is he not the first guest <laughs> like, I don't understand um but it was an actress no. you know or you know yeah 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 TV is just impenetrable I don't understand it yeah here it's just there's hardly any music at all on TV and when you yeah. see people talk there it's in it's almost as if it's social media or it's like not mm. even as clever as social media it's there's a lot about there are sometimes shows made about musicians but it's all this kind of fandom mm. celebrity culture even if it's not on a scale like you know with american artists and fans it's still presented with through that language and this language i don't understand that's one of the things i really struggle with with being an artist in a field of work that contains live shows and appearances and and being yeah. like slightly more visible than if i had been um a writer of unpopular books and that was it because that is what i am when i'm a writer <laughs> <laughs> so when 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 I'm doing music I'm I'm seen by more people and and I'm not the kind of person who's very sort of comfortable with that because like in one way or another it's sort of it's a reminder of that it's a mix of something very genuine that we all miss right now which is you know coming together yeah. and the incredible yeah. power of that but also this kind of the way that the industry has sort of made it into like formed it into a celebrity culture rhetoric mm that I find very difficult to deal with. Even mm. more, actually, um, when when I'm confronted with other artists, which is probably why I've, I've never tried to speak with you when we've played the same festival, because I'm always <laughs> running away from other artists. Oh, I'm quite the opposite. I'm, I've run two artists a lot. Oh, that's nice. Because I feel that they are my family and they're the only people like actually feeling very comfortable with. Um, ah, so nice. I, the, you know, they're the people who give me hope. And mm. that's partly why I wanted to do the TV show, because sitting down with artists and hearing them talk, it just makes me happy. Yeah, it is a family, for sure. I mean, that's that's a really sort of a beautiful idea that I wish. I mean, I'll try to learn from you. Um, I'll think <laughs> about that next time I meet someone and I was, I, I, but my I body feels like it wants to melt. Yeah. There was a question I wanted to ask you actually about... You know, you as a book writer and you as a mm -hmm. musician and performer, I wondered what came first or, or which one would def you you think is defining you more, if if any. Um, but also if, if as a kid or as a teenager, did you want to be a writer first? How did the performance then came in into your life or was it first performance and then writing, etc.? What's the relationship between words for you like did you need words when you were a kid more than you needed music for instance yeah I did I mean I, I was very 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 interested in music and I was I wasn't really playing instruments when I was very young but I was playing them in my spare time <laughs> I got a synth and I was very drawn to it but I I, I was from a sort of a very early age I, I was writing books so I, I always right. wanted to be a writer. I felt like that was a, a life I could have, 
or I didn't feel like I was I was so good at it that I could have like you know I didn't think about that stuff you mean a life of uh, poverty and isolation <laughs> yeah yeah poverty isolation quiet yeah <laughs> quiet um, that's what I thought I would like live live on a lighthouse and just walk around in the grass on the beach wow. and then I would write I mean very silly but I mean that was my fancy when I was nine um, of my life. Who were your favorite writers? Oh at that time that was very early so that I guess if I if you'd asked me at nine it would have been one of those would have been a writer of Swedish horse novels for kids. When I was a little older I was thinking about Virginia Woolf mm. but I was also thinking that I would actually be in her books even more than being yeah. someone like her. So it was very mixed up. I had no issues at that time with, I mean, I read mostly books written by male writers because that's most of what you could find. So I mm. had no sort of, this was before I was, I felt, I didn't feel like a very gendered person, especially with writing, which was for me an incredible, like felt, made me feel very, very liberated from all those like constraints of boy mm. and girl that was so crushing for many of us, I think, you know, in, um, in our teens. So mm. I, I had a lot of ideas about who, who I would be as a writer. I mean, I, I was playing music and I started sort of making melodies with some of the stuff I was mm. writing. And then later on, I played in a band. I mean, I, I also went to... Um, a type of music high school, but I, I played the guitar, but I wasn't very good. But I think I had an idea that I could work with music somehow, that it could relate mm. to the, the words. So that was more of a, I wouldn't say coincidence, but I never felt like I was going to be a musician. To me, being a musician had to do with skill because that's what I learned in school, that you know, you have, mm. first you had to just be skilled you had to get the highest mark in all the sort of skill subjects and get into music schools based on your technical performance mm. in the audition, that kind of thing. So I just, I, I, I thought I would be like an academic writer or like I would sustain myself being an academic and then I would write fiction and mm. then maybe I would do some music on the side. So now it, it, it didn't really turn out like that, but um, <laughs> I've hardly ever been to a lighthouse. But yeah, it's interesting how music then became somehow easier for me because mm. maybe it was more free, maybe it was a simpler form and maybe it was more intuitive. Maybe also writing is something that comes with age. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I'm still mediocre, but I'm improving. With music, <laughs> I feel like I'm too old. I mean, that, that, that doesn't relate to my songwriting. It relates more to the world that yeah. we, we're in, which, which is all about youth. Yeah. Youth is great. And, you know, time, every single moment of time always exists. But yeah, I, as a writer, I think you have more time in so many different ways. Well, the characters in your books are, are young. They, they're, the age is like between childhood and adulthood, you know, that awkward moment yeah, when yeah. you have to decide what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. So I think in both of my books, I have dealt with at least partly young characters because I've felt like it, 
I'm maybe I'm still kind of getting getting through those things that deal with defining who you are or dealing with understanding who you are and also where where you are like what is this country what is this place mm. what is place what is this mythology what is happening <laughs> in the girls against god book because i didn't live in norway when i was older and I, i've never returned to the sort of rural south that mm. i grew up in that that book was sort of it needed the younger character slightly more angry than myself although i think many people just think it's me which is fine i was wondering Yeah, I think I like to write that way in a, a more like you would write poetry where it doesn't matter. Mm. Whether it's just you or whether it's slightly yeah. someone else. It doesn't matter. I, I agree. Yeah, I've needed I've needed to return to the, the the age I was when I was living in that Bible Belt part of my country. Yeah. And it was really fun too because then I could make her so angry. Yeah, she's so angry. I actually <laughs> felt it was really nice because I think you write about um anger and hatred really well. The way you said like hatred isn't subtle but it's beautiful, you know. And uh, mm. and it's kind of rare at the moment to see hatred being seen as a positive fuel because uh, I feel um especially in popular cultures and you know music or otherwise that everything seems so tamed and It's definitely not a selling point if you, you know, if you want to be popular, you have to sort of uh, present yourself as someone who has only pure thoughts and and wants the best for yeah. the world and think of, uh, has so much empathy for every single individual that is mm. <laughs> that is living on this planet. And I can't help but think that it's, uh, there's a layer of hypocrisy in that never endless stream of compassion, you know. And when I read your book, I felt relieved to find a character that uh, suddenly could echo the sides of me, which are, which personally I, I like to express in my work, in on my record to love is to live. I think there's so much of of trying to wear the mask of evil, wear the mm. you know, and trying to embody those characters who suddenly are like, I'm evil too. I have those thoughts. They're shameful, but I you know. And obviously there's a link with religion. So that's another thing I want to discuss with you because obviously mm. in Girls Against God, it's very present. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of hating God. And, and there's a lyric on one of my songs, Innocence, where I say, and there's the guilt, of course, because I was raised Catholic and they teach mm. you it's bad form to think man is a piece of shit. <laughs> so it's this idea of, I wanted to write a song uh, representing my feeling of emptiness and my incapacity to feel for uh, the rest of humanity sometimes. Mm. And living in a city and feeling that my heart was so small, maybe too small, and, and there's only one or two people I could really care about, but the rest, they can all go to hell, you know? And I have this sort of visceral <laughs> um, lack of empathy and And then it goes away and then it comes back and then it goes away and then it comes back. And I'm like, is this a feeling that defines me? Does anybody else feel that way sometimes? Like a sort of disgust, like even, even physical mm. about humanity, you know. And the guilt, of course, of feeling that because I was raised with these ideas of charity and compassion and, and caring for others and and. And this sort of also pressure of today's times, I think, to as a performer, as an entertainer, 
I was a front person to care for every single person in the room when you're performing, which actually I do believe I feel at uh, those moments when those people have come to perform for me. To, to, sorry, to, actually, it's funny I said that, but they come to watch the performance and they care and I care for them at that moment. But I don't have that. It's a struggle with that connection with the rest of my peers sometimes. So anyway, I, yeah, I, I, yeah go ahead. If that's I, not really a question. But. I, just, I think that, I mean, uh, the compassion, self-hatred, religion, I mean, it's so closely related. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane how, and I, and I find that, I mean, I'm, at the moment I'm trying to write something critical, something that I don't know what it is yet, um, yeah. but it's, it's with words, so it's on paper. And I'm, I'm sort of trying to say something about the dilemma of being an artist and being sort of forced to be all mm. alone and on your own and taking all the responsibility and, and not being able to come together because you don't really see I think that's the problem many times. I mean, we're forced into being freelancers. We're forced into taking on these. Um, I mean, if you're if you're going to be critical, then you you have to be clean. You can't criticize exactly. something and then yeah. and then you've done something that's wrong. Um, you can be cancelled. All this kind of stuff. That to me is due to an extreme lack of empathy that I find comes out a lot in our sort of distanced world where we can yell at each other online without mm. doing the research without looking at what a person is. And I sort of look for a way to be critical, but also be able to say, like, have a voice without being clean. And I think I started thinking about this because I was washing yeah. my hands so much. That's a very beautiful way to put it. <laughs> Having a voice without being clean. That, that's brilliant. That's, that's exactly that. Because isn't that what we, I mean, that's the only way to speak. To maybe admit, I mean, not even admit, because admitting, like that, that sounds so sinful. And my very <laughs> clever friend who comes from a, a at least partly non-Christian country was saying to me one day, you know, this kind of, this idea of, of blame and responsibility is, is so Protestant. She said, I mean, it could be easily as mm. Catholic, um, mm. but, but carrying all this stuff around and feeling like you have to be clean it's it's very religious it is um, even yeah. if even like me I'm not religious I mean I don't believe in God not not any God that I know of from my childhood at least so so for me to realize that I am so religious when I, <laughs> I look upon myself you know like the mm. self-reflectiveness that has managed to really take hold of me throughout my life, especially my upbringing and all those sort of traces of that, that view, I think, is, is really necessary to, to really look at if we are to succeed in any sort of coming together when we're so separate. Mm. I don't know if there's a way, but I'm, I'm trying to write something critical. I don't know what it will be. The idea of the sin is, is um, what your friend told you and it's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot. And there's a song on my record called We Will Sing Together, mm -hmm. which people sometimes think I say we will sing together, which mm -hmm. I, I, quite, I quite like that twist. Yeah, um, that's lovely. But the idea, I think, is to say that um, there's no right or wrong. There's only in and out. 
uh, in the sense of there's no living without being wrong. Mm. And, and which connects with what you said about um, having a voice and not being clean <laughs> necessarily. Uh, because for me, that, that's what you require from politicians. But yeah. that's not what you yeah. should require from artists. Mm. And I think sometimes we, because maybe of this sort of um, shift into stardom or, or celebrity, yeah. uh, which politicians have uh, embraced, yeah. and that is also very present in the art world and music especially For sure. too. I think suddenly we're forced into that sort of uh, being under the scrutiny of, of morality and, you know, and... Uh, who are you to say this? And, and you can't be a thinker without being sort of uh, looked at with a massive uh, uh, <laughs> uh, enhancer and uh, being criticized, uh, as you said, mm. for having a voice and, and not being uh, perfect. And that's why I always felt that um, stardom and being a star is not for me because I, I, I think with that comes a responsibility. I don't know if that's the right word, but, but, but more like um, a pressure to, to always pretend to be on the mm -hmm. good side of the fence. Mm. And that for me is completely, every pause in my body say no. I, I <laughs> cannot, <laughs> I cannot pretend be in front of you and pretend that I uh, only have pure thinking and I'm full of contradictions. I'm, I'm a human being. I'm full of, I'm com it's complex what's going on. And, and maybe that's why the art I create is maybe, you know, more difficult. It's not difficult, but it's more, um, you can't reach those sort of summits of popularity because it's complex. It's showing complexity. But Absolutely. saying that, there were there were records that were showing a certain level of that were layered, you know, yeah. which went really big, and that's why I was really happy with Kendrick Lamar releasing "To Pimp a Butterfly" because I mm -hmm. felt that that was the sort of record that was layered, that was complex, that mixed genres, that was free, and it's found its massive audience. So yeah, yeah. And I felt suddenly I could, like when I was 10 years old or eight years old and I was a big fan of very popular bands, like, I don't know, Aerosmith or like, <laughs> something <laughs> ridiculous like that. But, you know, when you're eight, you're, you're into big, you know, bands and yeah. you too or, you know. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. suddenly I could uh, again be part of a popular movement. You know, I, I'm at mm. Coachella and I can go see the headliner. Mm. And it felt great. It felt, oh, thank you, because I, I suddenly I don't have to like this sort of obscure band because that's the only thing that, you know, that speaks to my soul. Um, of course, I still love the underground and, and et cetera, but it felt good, you know, to suddenly mm. not having to, yeah, to, to be part of something big, you know, to love something that was part of the mainstream. Yeah, that can be really amazing to go into that as well. There are these moments at something like a huge show where even people like me can feel like part of something. But I mean, yeah. many, many times when I watch mainstream TV or other sort of more manipulated yeah. <laughs> settings, major action movies, that kind of thing, I feel very yeah. left out. But there can <laughs> be like, maybe that's, that, that's what music is for, these moments of someone, you know, in a live setting being a person and being much more complex than well-edited Marvel movies can ever be because mm. they are, you, you can't really focus group that. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But we haven't talked about your book and I've read it. I feel like, ah, sure. I have many things I want to ask you. This is your first book. Yeah. First published book, yeah. Ah, first published book. <laughs> have you seen yourself as a writer like previously? When I was a teenager, I used to write constantly. It was, um, I never really thought of myself as a writer, but I definitely did it all the time. And I was writing stories and what I called my first novel, you know, we always have that mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, for, at 13 or something. And uh, mm. it had a title, it had everything. And I, wow. um, I, I actually wrote two of those and then it was not very good, I think, but um, I also kept diaries from a very mm. young age until now. Um, I definitely think I went into music from for writing, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I always wanted to be on stage as, as a performer, you know, to be a performer was part of who I wanted to become, mm. having, you know, watched so many rehearsals with my dad and playing in my dad's plays and sort of being on stage felt very natural to me. Um, but uh, writing was the secret weapon. It was the... The way I could understand myself and in my household the words were never really spoken it was although it was a very open sort of theatrical crowd and you know it was quite mm -hmm. creative around it was very difficult to relay emotions and to share with mm. intimacy so mm -hmm. I think words were the way to keep control the the starting point of this book was um photography yeah 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 Yeah, when me and my partner, Johnny Stein, moved to Paris, he mm -hmm. picked up a camera and started taking pictures uh, of me, but also of close friends and then of people we would meet specially for this. And and mm. the subject of his photos were um, sexuality and intimacy mm. and the body, you know, um, and a certain type of, I guess, pornography, but not using that in a derogative way. Because uh, mm. I think some of the images are... Uh, can create arousal, you know, or excitement or any. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So there was this sort of thing going on in my life and all the pictures are anonymous. So you never see a face, which I think is very clever in a time of um, the constant selfie where the face is uh, everywhere. <laughs> and what it created was uh, a time and space, a bubble, where the people involved would start sharing their stories there was a lot of trust and a lot yeah, yeah. of uh, it's a it, complete relaxed moment where mm. society the outside world was completely shut down and it felt exactly the same feeling as when you're a kid and you have your friend coming over and you play mm. together the whole afternoon and you're thinking you're spies and yeah 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 uh, and the world is completely shut down so it's exactly how it goes there's this sort of bubble moment that we share and that is fun and expressive and 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 that always feels very good and so this mm. is like a little community over the you know three years we've done that uh, traveling as well around the world pictures were taken sometimes in london or in la or depending where we were And this community of people is is uh, what inspired me to start writing the book because suddenly it was my relationship with Johnny Hostile as well that pushed me to write. I wanted to write about the, the kind of ideas we talked about together mm. and the search for alternatives, you know, the search for mm. for the kind of imprisonment that one can feel with the type of romanticism that is 
supposedly uh, the only sort of archetype for relationships and love and yeah. and and um, that can feel very suffocating sometimes. So it's it's uh, trying to present alternatives for whoever is intrigued and interested without uh, trying to say that's what you need to do because I think it's it's just a book <laughs> it's not it's not a... well that's yeah I mean that's the beauty of that sort of voice you can present alternatives yeah um, and they don't even have to be alternatives they can be concrete like they don't have to be like this is an alternative to you don't have to be necessarily as angry as my character you can be more explorative yeah. like in your stories because I find that your book, on the one hand, it's it's got little narratives, but they also sort of create within themselves, like they relate very, very much to questions about sexuality, but they also relate to questions about imagination and yeah. and um, and also the images create also then this nice dialogue that kind of, for me, relates to I, I, the, the writing perhaps, but also just like the 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 shapes and forms of language. So when I was talking about mm. pronunciation before, one of the images from the book popped up in my head for some reason. Um, I think find that they relate to language and even singing very much. I, d I don't see the images as being faceless. They're more like you can be, <laughs> or you can join them, you know? It's like a body yeah. that um, you can link with or, or, or um, not enter because that sounds very... <laughs> In this context, it sounds very um, obs not obsessive, but objectifying. But I mean, yeah. like it's 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 an entry point to the imagination, which which right. I find very sort of musical. Hmm, that's interesting. I de I definitely was cautious to not um, to have uh, the least names I could. I think there's one name. There's Tanya. There's Vala. But m most yeah, of the yeah. characters don't have a name. Mm. And also there's no place and no mm. time, mm. which I uh, maybe it's something that is part of writing a first book uh, for me in the sense of I, I dared not be too anchored into some kind of reality, which I think is something maybe I need to think about because also not giving a name is, is not necessarily um, very respectful. Um, yeah, but the name fiction. is a Christian name. Yeah. <laughs> also. Yeah. Which is why my character in Girls Against God didn't have a name, even though... There you go. I don't mind. Of I course. Don't, I don't mind if, if people think so, but, but yeah, I but didn't want a Christian name to, for the main character. The, the idea of not naming, actually, I didn't notice, but in, in your book that she didn't have a name, it's, it's actually true. And you don't necessarily need it. And maybe that's why I felt that it was you, because... You merge very much with your character if you if the character doesn't have a name. Yeah, I think I think also that's part of the reason because I want to keep it in between. Um, just having a different name is also than saying no, no. This is I'm just a writer here writing yeah. about something that is not myself. So it for, I didn't really want to. I mean, I'm not over that. I find it so interesting that. You, you say it's a first book thing to not have a name. Maybe maybe that's true. Maybe I'm I'm always writing my first book then. Um, but it is, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about this when I'm writing. I need a name. Yeah, me too. Things need to have names. There needs me to be too. a place. <laughs> and I remember this from writing my first book, that I had no names and I had no places. But my yeah. editor 
kind of, he didn't force me, but I think that he really wanted to have things very much, much more concrete than I wanted to, because originally the Paradise Rot um, novel wanted to be more like your book, wanted to be more like, not as erotic, but still kind of maybe rotic as in rotting and also erotic, Um, but more like little tales from a nameless place with nameless characters that could be the same or different ones. I mean, it makes it sometimes for some readers very frustrating because that's, that's how you sort of, you know, it's like gender. You need to see the clear gender of people. Otherwise it's just so troublesome for, (laughs) for a lot of people. Then they have to think so much. Yeah, I struggle with gender sometimes. I, I, the inverted man. One of the stories is called the inverted yeah. man. Uh, she yeah. was a woman. Yeah, that was beautiful. She was a woman uh, before, and then I halfway through writing the story, I changed it to a man. Um, and there's a story where I didn't choose a gender. Uh, it's the one uh, called the bitching. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So there's no gender there, but you can. She's he or she's wearing. Um, sort of um lady uh outfit so maybe Mm. but you could still think it's a man but um but for the inverted man I was sort of writing the inverted woman and then I figured that because this story was specifically about trauma childhood trauma Mm. then Mm. uh, tagging along with you and shaping your sexuality and how Mm. you your journey with that as an adult um I felt that that was something that had been written a lot about maybe more about women in the sense of uh, traumatic, you know, sexuality and, you know, uh, struggling with uh, sexuality. And and, uh, I felt that writing about that from the point of view of an heterosexual man maybe Mm. was helping a little bit more at breaking uh, some of the perceptions of what an heterosexual man struggles with, or you know, or or, mm. or or never struggles with his sexuality, or could never have this sort of uh, traumas and or or things to deal with, or things to solve, or a battle mm. uh, with his own sexuality. I think that's more like the point of view of the victim is more the woman or the homosexual man, or you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I, sh- I changed it. So the choices of gender was something I I had to think about, but that you don't want to think about. And I really, it really changed the point of view of your book, uh, Paradise Rut, to think that you didn't want um, initially a place and a name, etc. And make Mm. it a little tale, because there is a tale element to your story, for sure. Uh, Mm. It sort of stays in my mind as a place. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a place I can still visit. If that makes mm. sense, like the brewery is a place I can go to in my mind now, and and I can see every the wood and the 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 maybe the damp and, and the mushroom in the bathroom, and uh, you know I can see the the place, and and I love mm. the books where it can be anchored somewhere like this where you've lived, yeah, by reading it, yeah, yeah. I always intended to have the place, it, like the house, to be as strong and present. It was more the the name of the city, the name of the, of the characters. characters, and like this. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. It was mainly the names and clear genders. I remember being very embarrassed when I had to invent names because mm. um, I always wanted to take them out. But I don't think it matters so much now. Yeah, I think it has to do with where I was at um, as a writer, and not. I guess it felt like names exposed something. 
regardless of what yeah. they are, regardless of you, whether you know someone with that name or not. It's not about yeah. that so much. It's about, I named this. So, you know, God gave names to all the animals. It, it feels godlike. And I don't want to be godlike as mm. a writer. I guess I want a different role. So mm. it has to do with those things, I think. With the inverted man, I kept thinking of tar the tarot card, the hanged man, of course. Because right. you can get it inverted in a tarot reading. Mm. Yeah, I dealt a lot with, with these archetypes for my album of last year because I was going to do this cover art with an artist who would draw um, some kind of freeform tarot cards that were included in the LP cover and you could push mm. them out of perforated paper so you can sort of use them but there are only eight one for each song so I had to find eight different cards that mm. she could then transform into other more liberal cards Yeah, so ever since I've been thinking of tarot cards a lot. So they appeared mm. when reading. And also, I guess, because of the, um, the images, the, the photos. But the, the ending of, of The Inverted Man is really beautiful. This other character yeah. that is just appearing, this woman, right? Or is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, It's, uh, yeah, the idea, I mean, I don't know. Kind of merged really nicely with, with the trauma, with like previous sexual encounters, Like she or that person was sort of everything in the moment. She disappeared and her silhouette resembled something else. And then came the photograph, which then went onwards into being another silhouette. So it was a beautiful moment for me in your book. Hmm. Wow. I, I, yeah, I, I struggle with that ending I mean, I didn't struggle, but I questioned myself of how I wanted to end this story. Mm. I think I wanted for the character to be able to uh, not accept the help that this character was sort of bringing on the table, like a magical wand. Like it's always the idea of if someone came in and said, I can cure all these things you've been struggling with for mm. years, um, mm. would you say yes, you know? Mm. And I think the idea of not being able to keep what you gained from those traumas mm. and from those struggles, they have become too much part of who you are and you can't, you have to, you, you'd rather live with them than just become normal. And yeah, yeah. I think that's very much how I feel personally. I think that's probably one of the moments where I put a bit of myself in the characters. Mm -hmm. But the, then the character fades away in the, in the sort of heated pavement and the waves of that heat is sort of shaping the silhouette into as if the silhouette was upside down so my idea of that and I don't think people will see it but my idea was um, that the person who came to rescue the inverted man was used to be inverted as well mm. <laughs> so it's I don't know I was very into um, you know the sort of magical realism of writers, South American writers, and, yeah, yeah. Um, like Borges or mm. Gabriel García Márquez. Mm. Or I was wondering what, um, because you go from monologues to dialogues. Yeah. And I was wondering what happened to make you sort of split, because I'm always very interested in form. I mean, I've yeah. struggled a lot with what to do yeah, with the form. Yeah, the form is the first, yeah. <laughs> so what, how oh, yeah, did that appear? Yeah, the form is the... Yeah, I agree. The form is the most difficult thing and it's the thing you need to find at the beginning mm. so you can write a book. I mean, personally, that's how I, I try to think about mm -hmm. it. So 
I didn't have a form. I knew what I wanted to write about. Initially, I wrote an essay about sexuality and freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was very personal. And then I felt that was too personal. Mm. And I didn't want to write an essay. I wanted to write fiction. Because mm. I felt that fiction was more powerful in shaping people's minds and changing mm people's imagination and by the imagination by the work of imagination you can change someone's consciousness more than writing an essay Mm. you know so I went into fiction and literally I traveled to Spain to a village uh, in Spain where I didn't know anybody and I rented a place facing the sea and I was like I'm gonna write and and I'm not gonna think I'm just gonna put down a structure so what I did is I wrote number of chapters characters and then I started writing and let them speak. So the first story I wrote like that was uh, A Debt to Pleasure, mm-hmm. where there was this couple talking to each other and then um, sort of the introduction of a, a third. And then uh, yes. there was a crowd, yeah. the judgment and the judge. And mm. so so my, my idea, I think, that came from that structure was the idea of Greek tragedy. So... Mm where you have the choir, you know, coming in and talking about the action. Mm. And all the action is actually described in the dialogues. There's no didascalies. Um, If a character enters a room, he says, I enter a room. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought I wanted to have this sort of pure structure Mm. with a language that is quite antique, like quite... um, literary not not conversational even mm. though they're dialogues they're not conversational no because they didn't they're not they don't seem like they're meant to be taken directly onto a stage and just performed like that in a modern i don't know not so modern no. maybe but like realist theater kind of way no i don't think they are meant to be theatrical mm. even though they were inspired by uh theatrical work um well there are many ways I, I to make things I, theatrical so that could could have worked in many other types of ways. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But th- that was the starting point. And then mm. I started writing more dialogues and then monologues came in uh, after that. And when I finished writing this book, I was in Greece. Mm-hmm. A friend invited me there in a, again in a house in front of the sea. And there was no electricity and no heating. And it was summer and it was sort of a very rustic life. And I was writing all day and then seeing my friend in the evening Mm. and then she told me oh on Friday or I can't remember the day but they are showing Oedipus in the Greek theater oh wow uh, like half an hour (laughs) drive from here would you like to go and I was like my god this is crazy because this wow the the ending and the beginning sort of connecting together Mm. so Mm. we went to see Oedipus in this antique absolutely beautiful theater amphitheater on open air Wow. And I felt, yeah, it was the closure, perfect closure for finishing the book (laughs) in that context. Oh, amazing. Voila. Voila. We've covered so much. It's been so... It's been great. Yeah, so amazing. I feel like writing now. Yeah, me too. And and well done for whoever thought about bringing us together because I think it was a perfect match and I had a really good time talking to you, Jenny. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, and I love reading your books and I feel very, um, so much, yeah, so much connection. So I'm, I'm yeah. very happy. Hope Me we too. can meet in person. Yeah, because I have a lot more to ask you. Oh, please. Anytime. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. Take care, Jenny. Bye-bye. Jenny Beth 
Jenny Val, thank you so, so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. Listeners, make sure to check out Jenny Betts' To Love Is To Live LP and book Crimes Against Love Memories. And while we're waiting for Jenny Vall's next book, definitely pick up Paradise Rot. I want to remind you all that the only place you are able to see Zola Jesus perform live in the year of our Lord 2020 is her Patreon account. <laughs> I also have a, an exclusive store on Patreon where I offer handwritten lyrics, t-shirts that aren't available anywhere else, signed prints, and a bunch of other things to help uh, pay my pay my bills while I, all my work is on pause. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah, also you can check out a bunch of the stuff that I've done for Talk House, such as my podcast conversation with Sir Kitizia, and I've written some reviews for Bauhaus, Tricky, Tim Hecker, and many more. You can look at that over at talkhouse.com. While you're there, check out Jenny Vall's talk on Bjork's Volnikura as well as our column, The Way We Get By, featuring Jenny Beth and why she reads a million books at the same time. And as always, when you're at the site, check out the events tab. The day that this episode drops, that's Thursday, June 18th, we'll be hosting a TalkHouse podcast live on Insta convo between Barty Strange and Fusilier at 6 p.m. Eastern. Nika, I, I hope you'll be in the comments there. I certainly will. Throwing black hearts. <laughs> You know me too well. <laughs> Our researcher for today's episode was Samantha Small. And everyone that you've heard speaking has recorded themselves at their hashtag Stay Home Studios. Our producer is Mark Yoshizumi. And the TalkHouse podcast theme was composed and performed by The Range. Nika Rosa Danilova, a.k.a. Zola Jesus. I hope you'll join us again on the show sometime soon. I would love to. Just call me up. Yes. Till then, I'll see you on Patreon. See you there. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. Peace. Peace. And calm.